0: Well, before we come to the Lord's word, let us speak with our Lord and ask his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to have your word that uh, we are such sinful creatures and yet you continue to speak to us that as a loving Heavenly Father, the only true and good Father, the, the great example of what earthly fathers should be, that you continue to bless your children and to love your children and continue to guide your children through your word. We pray that we will be attentive to what you have to say this morning to us, that we will be able to clearly understand what you have said, and that we may uh, be all the better for it, that we may grow as your servants, as your children, and be uh, good children and pleasing in your eyes. And We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, this morning I've titled the, the sermon... Uh, the consequences of sin and realising sin has consequences. And uh, I think I realised this from a very young age, that uh, sin comes with consequences. When you do something wrong, it has consequences. From a very young age, that I actually don't remember one incident of me doing something wrong and getting punished for it, apparently when I was really little, must have been sort of two or three, Whenever I was upset about something, really angry about it, I would work myself into such a a tizzy about it that I would hold my breath and actually pass out. So I'd I'd pass out um, because I was so angry about not getting my way. And my mother was quite disturbed by this, and, uh, and understandably so. You shouldn't have your child killing over in the shopping centre all the time. But, uh, and so Dad, once when I did it, he, he smacked me for it. And Mum said, oh, you shouldn't do that, the poor little dear, you know, he's just uh, upset. And, uh, and he smacked me for it, and I never did it again after that. I realised that doing the wrong thing, something that wasn't good came with consequences, that it came with discipline. Thankfully my father stood in like a good father and exercised his parental right of disciplining me for it. So I realised from a very young age that sin has consequences. And that is what I think is a, a good message that God has for us here in this passage uh, in Acts chapter 19. And I picked this passage because I understand some of you are doing uh, Ephesians as a Bible study at the moment and I thought it would be good for you to get a background of the, the, the church in Ephesus from the very beginning as Paul came there and what he experienced and what he uh, did there and what the people in Ephesus also experienced. So as a background. And so uh, this passage uh, runs us through, uh, as, as Ray has read, uh, Paul arriving in Ephesus and then he finds some, some people there who uh, have heard of, of John the Baptist and he uh, elaborates on, on the Gospel with them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then we see him in verse 8, he enters into the synagogue as was his custom usually to go to the Jews first and he speaks there, argues persuasively, Uh, Some get upset about this and so then he moves uh, to his own lecture hall down the road uh, and teaches there for two years. And God uh, speaks through him and uh, we see uh, that all the Jews and Greeks in verse 10 who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He had a great influence on the area. But along with his teaching something extraordinary happens as well. In verse 11 we see God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. This is extraordinary kind of miracles. I mean, we don't, we don't even see this... Uh, well, we, we see with Jesus, we see him doing some extraordinary miracles where he's not even present with the people and he says, okay, your, your daughter will be healed. We see um, extraordinary miracles sometimes happen with Peter where they actually bring people out to be on the roadside as Peter walks past so that his shadow might fall upon them so that they are cured. And It's, it's not a usual thing for... Remote healing. I mean some people heal when the, the, a miracle is performed, they get touched and that kind of thing and so people expect that. But this is extraordinary stuff, taking a handkerchief that belonged to someone for healing. I mean, it, it's, it's quite incredible. And so it is not surprising that this takes the attention of the people and a particular group of people are quite interested in this kind of activity and we see that there in verse 13 some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. These guys, in the Greek it's quite clear, these are your local exorcists. So these aren't people that were uh, suddenly heard about Paul and thought, oh, I'd like to do that for a living. These are people who are actually practising this kind of uh, thing before Paul comes along, and so they hear of what Paul's doing, and they say, "That's a pretty good deal. I don't even have to show up to make money off this. I, I can, I can send something up, uh, along like a handkerchief and still uh, get the the influence and the power. And very probably they were making a lot of money off this, and so <clears throat> they want to be, uh, they want to tap in on this." Uh, this Lord Jesus that Paul's preaching. I, I, I think it would be a really good thing to, to add to my arsenal of weapons against demons and against illnesses. I will start using uh, this Lord Jesus. And so some of them started to do it and we see in verse 13 they, they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches... I command you to come out. It's interesting that they say, whom Paul preaches. It's not they preach that, this, this Lord Jesus. They haven't taken the Lord Jesus for themselves. They are, they're just using it remotely. They're, they're using this catch phrase like abracadabra. They've, they've found the magic word and it's the Lord Jesus. That's the word you use. The one that Paul preaches That's the one that works. And so they haven't taken it for themselves. They're just using it to make money off it. They're they're tapping in onto this good business that Paul seems to have have found. And so uh, they they start to use it. And then we see uh, a particular group is spoken of in verse 14. Seven sons of Sceva, a, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So we see a particular group doing this. And really these guys should have known better. They are sons of a chief priest. Not just a priest, but a chief priest. One with great responsibility and one who should have been instructing his sons on the right thing that they should be doing. That they shouldn't be running around doing this and taking this, this Lord Jesus name and, and using it and abusing it. But they are doing it. And what happens? Well, it backfires on them pretty badly. We see that there in verse 15. Verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It backfired on them pretty badly. They got beaten up for it. And this event has a tremendous result on the area. And that's what I want to speak about this morning. Is uh, I've divided it into five main points. Five points that come from this realisation that sin has consequences. That abusing the Lord's name had consequences. And the first one we see is in verse 17... Uh, And the first main point is it becomes known that sinful actions have consequences. The knowledge of it spreads. We see that in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, it's it's a great revelation that sin has consequences. Now we may think that that is something that's not that revelatory. We we learn if we have good fathers that do discipline us from a young age that sin does have consequences. But this becomes known to Jews and Greeks living through Ephesus. Jews and Greeks. It becomes known to everyone, not just the Jews, not just, and that would be who you'd think it'd go to because I mean these seven sons of Sceva are. Jews, so it would, uh, it's very likely that the Jews would all find out about it, but the Greeks find out about it as well. It becomes known. And it's because people often become dull to sin. They think that sin doesn't have consequences, that they can get away with sin, that it's not going to come down upon their heads. And this is what happens in our society as well. We think that there are some sins that Aren't going to have consequences, or maybe even have good consequences. They don't have bad consequences; they have good consequences, like white lies. We talk about telling white lies—that telling a falsehood—and if it benefits people, that it's a good thing to do. That and you, you don't tell everyone the absolute truth, and you actually cover up the truth in a lie. You ignore the ninth commandment at those points because God would want you to. We think that the sin doesn't have consequences. It actually might have good consequences. Or we think that something like pornography, it's, it's, it doesn't have consequences. It's just you in the computer or you in the magazine. It doesn't really have any consequences. It's not, it's not going to... Uh, you aren't going to get a bolt of lightning coming out of the sky upon you. We think that it doesn't have consequences. Or homosexual marriage. We always, the media always talks about it. It's between two consenting adults. They agree to do it, so therefore it's not sinful. They're quite fine with it. God doesn't know, God doesn't care. I've been reading Ezekiel in my quiet times and it's, it's amazing how often it comes up that they say, the Jews, and God says to the, these people say, this people says, God doesn't know, God doesn't hear, God doesn't listen, God doesn't see what I am doing. And we think God doesn't bring any consequences upon us for our sin. And we think that as Christians sometimes. We think that being disobedient, there are no consequences to our sin. That we can go on and call ourselves a Christian, use God's name. In a different way that these seven sons of Sceva were, but we take on Jesus' name when we call ourselves Christians and then we have a responsibility to live up to that name. And we think that if we don't, well, there's no consequences to that. It is a revelation to find out that sin has consequences at times. And that is what happens to the church, uh, to these people in Ephesus. It became known. This incident with the seven sons of Sceva, suddenly people went, ooh, we've got to to be careful about what we do because there are consequences. You can get beaten up for it. And so uh, my question for you this morning is, uh, with this main point is, have you understood that your sinful actions have consequences? Have you understood that? My second main point is uh, that this uh, incident leads to fearing God, honouring God and believing in God. When you realise that sin has consequences, you fear God, you honour God and you believe in God. And that is there in uh, verse 17 as well. In verse 17 it says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed, so we've got it there, they were seized with fear, and and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour, and many of those who believed. We've got people who are believing, we've got people who are honouring God, and we've got people who are fearing God. And this is what happens when you realise sin has consequences. You fear the consequences, You fear to displease God. You fear to dishonour God, to abuse God's name as these seven sons of Sceva were. And then you believe in God because people may deny that sin doesn't have any consequences, that they can go on doing things that they they want all their lives and that no bolt of lightning comes out of the the air and and gets them. But the... the hard, cold truth is that sin does have consequences and we all have to realize this at some point because we all will meet our Maker at some point. We will all die. Death is not something that is supposed to be in the world. It is only here because people sin. When sin entered into the world, death entered into the world. And everyone one day will die. It is a reality. And it means that you may think that someone, you, know, like you see these celebrities, they have wonderful lives, they have all the money, they have all the luxury, they have all the power, the status in society, and you think they, they, they don't have any consequences to their sinful actions, but they do. One day they will die. It will come down upon their head, they will die, and then they meet their maker, and then they find out that there are consequences to sin, There is an eternity of suffering in hell. There is an eternal punishment. Sin equals hell. It either equals hell for you for an eternity, you have to pay for your sin again and again in eternal punishment, or it equals hell for Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, we put our trust in Jesus and that he experienced hell for us on the cross. There's no getting out of it. Hell has to be the payment for sin and it's either you pay it or Jesus pays it. And so we have to realise that when we, uh, when we sin that there are consequences and that this then leads us to fear God, honour God and believe in God because you don't want to take Jesus' name in vain anymore. You want to uh, take Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and honour him as your God. And that's what these Ephesians did. They went, this is terrible. When we sin, we can get beaten up for it and there are other consequences. These people have been instructed by, by Paul as he's been preaching for, for many years amongst them and they're all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus is held in high honour and they believe, they believe in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. They don't want to experience hell. They don't want to get beaten up like these seven sons of Sceva. So they fear God, they honour God, they honour Jesus' name, they recognise that this isn't some deity that we can start using as a way to make money, as a way to get success and power, that this person needs to be respected, this Jesus Christ needs to be respected and he needs to be believed in or otherwise one day I will have to pay for my sin for an eternity. And so my question for you on this point is, have you feared God? Do you honour his name? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in Jesus as a payment for your sins? My third main point is that this incident of the seven sons of Sceva finding out that sin has consequences, it leads these Ephesians to confess sinfulness. The third effect is that it leads people to confess sinfulness and we see this in verse Uh, 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. When you find out that sin has consequences, it makes you do something quite unusual. It makes you confess that you are in the wrong. And whenever you confess that you are in the wrong, that makes you liable to consequences. It makes you liable to damage. Whenever you say, I did something wrong then someone can say, well, you need to make a restitution for that. And this is something that we, uh, we recognise, uh, most of society recognises. I mean, you see it all the time. Uh, whenever you, you break a law, you have to pay for it. And it's, it's quite interesting. Last time I preached this sermon at the church I was at, it was just before uh, Kevin Rudd uh, made the apology to the stolen generation. And he said, sorry, sorry. And it was leading up to that and I got a quote from him from the the Herald and it said, the government will apologise to Indigenous Australia's stolen generations when Parliament resumes next month, but will not establish a compensation fund. Now I'm not making a comment about whether Kevin Rudd should or shouldn't have said anything to the stolen generation. Uh, That's not my point. My point is that he knew that when you say sorry, generally you have to compensate There is a compensation that is required whenever you admit that you are wrong and we as humans know that. We know that when we confess that we are sinful, that when we've done something wrong, we are then liable to consequences and we see that with these Ephesians. They openly confess that they are sinners and this takes great humility. To admit that we have done something wrong goes against all our pride we learn it from a very young age. You see it with children. They become born debaters. As soon as they realise the difference between right and wrong and they're in the wrong, they suddenly go, oh yes, 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 I did that, but... you know, They want to argue the case. They want to get out of it. They want to justify themselves. The pride starts from a very young age. They want to justify themselves and say, no, 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 I am not wrong. And so it takes great humility for these Ephesians to confess their sins publicly, to come before their peers, come before the community and confess their evil deeds. And this is something we have to do as Christians, just like these Ephesians. We have to confess that we are sinners. We have to swallow our pride, crucify our pride, put it to death and say, yes, we have done things wrong. And we do this not just when we become a Christian, but we do this repeatedly as Christians. We confess our sinfulness. And we see this, uh, it's quite clear that Jesus wanted us to do in the two sacraments that he gave us, the two things we do, the the sacraments that he gave. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is baptism? Well, it's an outward public display of an inward reality that you have confessed your sins and been baptised into Christ's death. You're making a public declaration that I am a sinner. I have done things wrong and I need Jesus' forgiveness. And then with the Lord's Supper, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we come for communion, we are confessing that we are continuing to sin and we are in continual need of the Lord's forgiveness. When we come to celebrate communion, we're meant to examine ourselves, repent of our sins. We're meant to continually be doing this. And this is what uh, in the... In the Greek for this uh, verse 18 where it says they openly come, come and confess their sins, the, the coming there, it was repeated. It's in an imperfect tense. It's repeatedly. They're doing this again and again. And that's what we have to do as Christians as well. We can't think, you know, well, I've confessed my sins and that's it. I never need to come before the Lord in repentance again. We have to continually be recognising our sin and continually coming before God and asking for forgiveness. So my question for you is, on this main point is, have you confessed your sinfulness? Have you confessed that you are a sinner and in dire need of a saviour? And do you continually come as a Christian before him and admit your fault, admit that you've done things wrong and ask him for forgiveness? And then my fourth main point. This incident with the seven sons of Sceva and the fact that sin has consequences, it causes these Ephesians, fourthly, to take action against further sin. And we see that there in verse 19. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When you come to Jesus as a sinner and in repentance and belief, you have to be prepared to give up your sins. You don't want to sin anymore. You can't be a Christian and say, I believe Jesus pays for all my sins so that means I can go out and sin as much as I like and it's all okay, I'll still go to heaven. No, you're wanting to crucify your old self and you're wanting to continue to prevent any sins occurring in the future and that is what these Ephesians are doing. They're making a public declaration that I don't want to sin anymore and that's what we should see when people become Christians. We should see that publicly in their lives that they are changed people, that the sins that they did in the past are no longer occurring. Someone who is always bitter previously suddenly becomes a very loving person. Someone who is always getting angry and you know, they, they gradually are becoming more and more loving towards those around them. Someone who is stealing steals no longer, Someone who is always interested in uh, pornography and adultery is no longer, they're faithful to their wife, they're always caring for their wife. We see public changes in people and this is what we see in these Ephesians. They are publicly bringing their scrolls and they're burning them and they're trying to prevent themselves from sinning again. And they're doing this no matter what the cost. Uh, it says that they, uh verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now you may think, oh well what's 50,000 drachmas? Is that like 50,000 cents? You know? Well the NIV, if you've got an NIV, is very helpful here. Follow the footnote, there's a little letter A after drachmas. It takes you down to the bottom of the margin. Always follow the footnotes, a drachma was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. So there we have 50,000 days wages. So what's, what's that mean? Well 50,000 divided by 365 gives us 136 years. 136 years worth of salary. Whatever you earn, times that by 136 and then think of putting all that money together and setting it on fire. That's what these Ephesians were doing. They didn't want to sin any longer and they were prepared to do it no matter what the cost was to their lives. And they didn't want anyone else to fall into the sin. It would have been very easy in that city or the next city over to sell your scrolls, these magic scrolls, They would have made a pretty penny and then they could have given that to God's work, couldn't they? They could have gone into mission and things like that. But they don't want others to be captive to this kind of magic. They don't want others to be led into the sin. And so they make sure that no one else is ever going to be caught up by these kinds of scrolls and they burn them no matter what the cost. And so I want to ask you, what can you physically burn? I love to burn stuff. Ever, from, ever since I was very small and first found out about fire, loved love to burn stuff. Carols by Candlelight, it was my favourite part of the year for our church because you'd all get together and there's candles everywhere and even the song sheets, they would light up as well. I'm not sure if you're meant to be doing that. But anyway, they, uh, I loved Carols by Candlelight and afterwards I would go over to the church grounds and you know, gather as much wax as I could you know, and different candles and be continually burning uh, for weeks to come. Love fire. and So I would have loved a minister to get up and say what I'm going to say today. What can you commit to the flames? What have you got in your house that you can physically burn like these Ephesians? We have so many things in our house that we, we, we often don't think about as being ways that lead us into sin. And uh, this is the first day of, uh, of the first Sunday of spring. You wouldn't know it by the, the temperature, but I want to encourage you to think about spring cleaning your house. What have you got at home that leads you into sin? Are there things around the house that encourage you in sin? Are there things like magazines and books that aren't helpful? Ones that encourage you to materialism, encourage you in lust, encourage you in gossip. I, I just. These gossip magazines that they continually pump out in the news agents. Now, I, I never thought I'd say <laughs> a pulpit, mention Britney Spears' name but the fact is the poor girl, she's set up, they, they, they idolise her, they set her up and then they just wait for her to fall and then they gossip about her. You know, They follow her around and gossip and gossip and gossip and there's something about human nature that attracts us to it. There is so much gossip. If you just look at, even in the grocery store, you don't have to go to the news agency, you just stand there waiting to get your groceries checked through, and there's those gossip magazines there. We can't let ourselves get entangled in that, to be constantly uh, slagging other people. And so much of what they say, I, I really doubt any of it's true. You know, you, you really have to, uh, it, it's lies, it is slander, it is gossip. We have to go through our homes and make sure that we aren't attracting things like that. And movies and DVDs, uh, TV shows, we've got to be very careful about the messages that they are sending to us. We have them in our homes and we can be influenced by them. Hollywood has an agenda very often that they are pushing. They use movies and they're very good. I enjoy movies. But you've got to watch out that you aren't being affected by them. Jill and I watched a movie, uh, Million Dollar Baby, with uh, Clint Eastwood in it. And it's about this young girl who uh, is a boxer and she works herself up from the very beginning and she, uh, she trains herself up and she goes for the, the championship, the, the world title for, for female boxing and she's going to get it. You, you just know she is. And then the person who holds the title punches her in the back when they, when they stop uh, and they're meant to go to their corners, hits her. She doesn't see it coming, knocks her down, her neck hits on a stool and she's paralysed from the neck down. And then the rest of the movie suddenly takes this turn from being this rags to riches kind of story that we all love to her lying in a bed, paralysed from the neck down and getting bedsores, ending up with amputations and then she starts to try and kill herself. She starts to bite her tongue so she chokes from the bleeding and she just begs uh, Clint Eastwood to, to, uh, to put her to sleep, to give her an overdose of drugs. And you you sympathise with this girl. You think you had so much, and now yeah, I can see you just have nothing to live for. And so Clint Eastwood he does it. He injects her, and and he escapes from the hospital when the nurses aren't there. And and you think, and you can see that Hollywood is pushing that this is a good thing. Euthanasia is a good thing in some circumstances. It's a good thing, and you start to get affected by that. We've got to be very careful about what we let into our homes and what we let affect our minds. Have you got DVDs and movies and uh, TV shows and things like that at home that aren't helpful to you as a Christian? And you need to burn them no matter what the cost. You might be able to sell them on eBay, but you shouldn't want the other people to have them, like these Ephesians didn't want the other people to have them. What if you got at home that you can spring clean, that you can burn, that you can commit to the flames? That passage that I had read from Deuteronomy, it seems a bit obscure, but it, I wanted to emphasise that word that reoccurs re- there a couple of times. Purge the evil from among you. That word purge, it's in a form of the Hebrew called the piyar, which is an intensifier and it can be translated as burn or destroy. It really intense. It's an intense word. God doesn't want things among you that are going to cause you to sin, that are going to cause you to go back to that life that you had, so that are going to tempt you, purge the evil from among you. But don't just spring clean your house. Spring clean your mind as well. It's very easy to put on this... Uh, veneer of your of, uh, as a Christian, and, and people think, "Oh yes, uh, I've never heard a, a, an angry word from Joel, or I've never heard an angry word from someone else, or I never see them struggle with this, I never hear them swear." But in in your head, you can you can do things that people don't know about. You can you can. Uh, allow thoughts to roam and to range free in your mind. You can think bitter things about others without ever expressing them to others and enjoy them. You can think about pieces of gossip about others that you never express. You can, uh, you can have uh, images of lust and things that you've seen and you just retain them and you keep them there and you enjoy them without ever going the next step further. As Christians, we have to purge the evil from among our minds. As it comes into your mind, say, no, 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 I'm not going to think about it. I'm not like going to let it dwell in my mind. Just as I let things dwell in my house, don't let things dwell in your mind. Purge the evil from among you. And uh, sometimes we have to spring clean our jobs as well. That's My last point about this is that these Ephesians. one thing to recognise with them is that when they burn these scrolls they're giving up their livelihoods, a lot of them. You don't have 136 years worth of salary in scrolls lying around. This is, for a lot of them, would have been their work. They would have been tarot card readers, that kind of thing. They would have uh, been able to, like these roaming seven sons of Sceva, exorcists around, when they become Christians they give up their work, they give up employment, they see it as better to have an eternal inheritance than to allow themselves to be in a job that causes them to sin. And so sometimes we have to recognise that jobs that we have must go as Christians or we must remove ourselves from certain parts of our job. We have to take maybe a downgrade in pay. Uh, and it's easy to think about some jobs, I mean if you are a prostitute and you become a Christian, obviously you're going to be given up that trade. But there's, I mean it's, you, you think about it, is it possible to be a godly car salesman? We know car salesmen are notorious liars. I was just talking to my brother-in-law last night, and uh, he's a mechanic, and he told of this car salesman, used car salesman that comes into his, uh, his workshop, and he came in for a bit of a chat about something about another car. And he came in and he walked in holding one of these uh, speedo meters, you know, with the clocky Ks on your car. And he had it in his hand. And while he came in and he put it on the counter and while he was chatting away, he dismantled it and without, while holding a conversation, dismantled it, wound back 150,000 Ks and put it all back together in the time that he was talking to the, the guy. And he just did it so naturally. He obviously does it all the time. You know? And some people, you know, that's, that's how you make it as in your job. If you're going to be successful in your job, you have to do things that are contrary to God's law. You'd have to, now I, I, I wonder. You know, I, I don't think I've ever met a Christian car salesman. But how successful can you be? You've got to lie about your job all the time. You've got to lie about cars and say, oh, I can give you this and, and not necessarily, it's actually there or a lie. Does your job cause you to sin? These Ephesians were very careful not to sin and they were prepared to give up money for it, not just money or material worth that they had in the house but their livelihood as well. And sometimes as Christians we have to be prepared to give up things that cause us to increase our wealth, to, to just our daily sustenance and they were relying on God then to give their daily bread, not relying on sorcery and not relying on sin. And so uh, my question for you on this point is how are you taking action against your sin? Are you taking action? Are you taking physical action, removing stuff in your house when you know it's not helpful, when it arrives, you get rid of it? When things arrive in your mind, do you get rid of them as well? Do you take action against your sin as these Ephesians do? And then fifthly and finally, the final effect of this seven sons of Sceva, this incident of sin having consequences, the final effect is there in verse 20. This is the good one. In verse 20, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. We've seen a chain of events. As they know about the fact that sin has consequences, they then honour and believe, they confess, they take action against the sin in their life. Then what happens? God blesses. The fifth point is that God blesses. And so we should not expect that God will continue to bless us if we are happy to go on sinning. Uh, it is something, even as Christians, we have to recognise that God disciplines us. He, he is a good, loving, heavenly Father. He disciplines his children. He punishes them when we do things wrong. Not all times that we suffer uh, is necessarily a punishment from God. We can't connect it. You know, we can't think, oh, if someone has a heart attack, that they must have done something evil. That is not the, the, what I'm getting at. But... There are often consequences to our sin and one that really blows me away and I have to continue to remind myself as a, as a newly married compared to some, I'm coming up for three years now, but 1 Peter 3 verse 7, 1 Peter 3 verse 7 weighs heavy upon me. 1 Peter 3:7 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So as a husband I'm meant to be considerate as I live with my wife and respect her. Why? There's a purpose clause there, there's a result clause. Uh, At the end of that, that verse it says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That should strike fear into every husband's heart, that your prayers can be hindered If you do not respect your wife, if you are not considerate to her, if you get angry at her for no reason, if you lust after another woman who is not your wife, you are showing disrespect to her and then your prayers can be hindered. God repeatedly speaks in the Old Testament of turning a deaf ear to Israelite because of their sin. They are just so arrogant in their sin. And so we have to be careful that we are always taking action against the sin in our lives because it can trouble our relationship with God. It can hinder our prayers to God, our communication with God. And so we have to be careful. And James tells of the opposite effect. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Those who are continually taking action against sin in their lives, those people have powerful and effective prayers. And it speaks of Elijah as a great example. So... We have to recognise the sin in our lives as these, as these Ephesians did and we have to take action and then what happens? Well, the word of the Lord spreads widely and grows in power, it says in that verse, and that happens both in your own heart It spreads widely amongst amongst you and then it grows in power as you continue to take action against sin, to confess your sins before God, to continue to come before him in repentance. And so if you want the word of the Lord to spread widely and grow in power in your life, you need to get serious about sin and the fact that it has consequences. And if you want the word of the Lord to spread widely and grow in power here in Moines as a church, Moines Baptist needs to get serious about sin. It needs to take off the old self, to continue to crucify sin and to encourage each other to take action against sin. And then hopefully we'll see God's word grow in power and spread widely throughout Sydney. That is what happened with this Ephesian church and it can happen as well for you guys. You've got to Continue to take action against the sin in your life and then watch God continue to bless you all. And so my question for you is on that point. Are you putting to death sin in your life and seeing God's word grow in power and spread widely? Let us speak with our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and we thank you for this wonderful testimony of what you did amongst this uh, great city of Ephesus that was so steeped in black magic and everything against you that you worked wonderful miracles there and that you caused so many people to fear you, to turn from their evil ways and then you did wonderful things and, and your word grew in power in that area. We pray for each of us this morning that we will continue to put to death the sin in our lives to come before you in confession and that we'll continue to uh, want to take action against the sin in our lives and that we may see your word grow in power in us as well and spread widely. And we pray also for the community of Des Moines, Lord. We pray that your word may spread widely here as well and grow in power and that many more people may come into your kingdom and be a part of the fellowship here and continue to be encouraged to take action against their sin and to continue to trust in you as the only source of forgiveness, the only way of salvation. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.